I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do in, matter. And in all safe. seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. There is no common ground possible between the people who believe in objective truth and cultural Marxists. Parents, social media is undermining you left and right. I mean, it's like dumping a bucket of termites outside your house every day and then thinking, it'll be fine. They won't mess with my house. Feminism has told us that our our children are the obstacle to our happiness instead of a means to our happiness. You know, when we take those tender and important and precious relationships away from women, they're not going to be more fulfilled without it. You know, Luther said on his deathbed that we're beggars all. He could have said, we're all dogs receiving crumbs from our master's table. This is Mark from Michigan, and I am a lawnmower listener. We love issues, etc. We've all seen the pictures of archaeologists down on their knees, down inside large square pits. They have little spades. They have tiny brushes. They're uncovering artifacts there to elucidate the biblical account. Biblical archaeology is fascinating, but that's pretty much, if I stop to think about it, almost all I know about it. So how does it work from beginning to end? How do they know where to dig? What do they do to prepare for an archaeological dig? How does it proceed? And then what happens after everything's dug up? What do they do then? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about archaeological digs with Dr. Mark Meal in the first half hour or so of the program. Then Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller join us to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Dr. Mark Meal is professor of theology at Concordia University, Nebraska. He's author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Art of Archaeology. Dr. Meal, welcome. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about some of the archaeological teams that you've worked with. I've worked on three digs during my fortunate time to be overseas. The first one was a team in Jordan, which was co-sponsored by the St. Louis Seminary at Tel Abila of the Decapolis, kind of a smallish team. The second one was a big excavation in Israel. We're at Tel Mikne Ekron, and I worked there for 10 seasons, and it was a big crew. Some seasons we had as many as 150 people working on the site. And then the third dig that I was working on was a, a dig up in northeastern Syria, Tel Rakai. And that was, a, again, a very small, mixed uh, European-American dig, a uh, staff of maybe 10 people. And we employed uh, locals to help us with the excavation part. So those have been the three excavations I'm familiar with. Why is archaeology such a slow 
method? That's a great question. It's asked by many of our volunteers as they get frustrated with our slow pace, but we have to do everything right the first time because we destroy our evidence. We're the only science that destroys its data. So once you excavate something, it's gone. You can't reproduce it. You can't reconstruct it. And so we have to do everything very carefully with painstaking detail and encyclopedic recording. Most digs employ a very redundant recording system. So if you miss recording in one place, the data will turn up in another place. But we only get one shot at it. And so it's important as we're excavating that we do things the right way. How much of archaeology is fieldwork? The field work is the fun part. You're out in the field, you're digging, you're outdoors, which is fun. Uh, you're uncovering new things, which people haven't seen in thousands of years. As you're working, besides just the excitement of the dig, oftentimes if we're like at Tel Mikne, we would have tour buses come up. The tourists would pile off the bus and take pictures of real archaeologists at work. And then other archaeologists would come along and ask what's going on. And that's the fun part. I call it summer camp for adults. Once that's over, the painstaking, encyclopedic, tedious crunching of data takes place where everything has to be compiled. And this is hours and hours in the library checking this fact against this entry over here. No busloads of tourists come to take pictures of you. No famous archaeologists come and check up on you. That's the tedious part. And unfortunately, archaeologists aren't really good at publishing because that's the really boring, tedious, hard part. So many archaeologists love the fieldwork experience, excavate like crazy, but then don't really do a good job of publishing their finds. And that's, if our field needs to improve as a discipline, it's to speed up or facilitate the publication of results. Go into a little more detail about what the archaeologist does with the majority of their time when he isn't in the field. Most archaeologists have real jobs. For instance, I'm teaching at Concordia. It's common to find people teaching at state universities, and there are very few full-time archaeologists. So mostly people are full-time educators and then do archaeology kind of as a hobby or as an outlet for their scientific and academic pursuits, which is what I've done. What are the two kinds of archaeological fieldwork and what do they entail? So in the article, I talk about surveys and excavating a site. Surveys are where you literally survey a broad area, big swatch of territory. So you line up people maybe five to 10 meters apart and you walk across a field looking for pottery, looking for any signs of human activity. Once you find something, you bag it, you record where it is found, and you can cover big swatches of territory to try and find out rough settlement patterns. Where were people living? Where were clusters of artifacts found? And that may guide future archaeologists. Further, you're finding potsherds, which tell you the date of various occupations. So you may find a cluster of Byzantine period shirts here, which would tell you, well, this area was occupied during the Byzantine period. And thus, when future archaeologists come along and say, okay, we're interested in excavating a Byzantine site in this area, they can look at your survey work and say, oh, there was a Byzantine site here, a Byzantine site here. And then they'll bring in their team and do the more typical field archaeology where you excavate a site layer by layer. The sites are built up as various people live there. People live at a site 
for various reasons, uh, defensibility, access to trade, water supply, natural resources. And as long as those factors are in play, it's a good place to live. And so people still live there. Like Aleppo in Syria has been continuously occupied for about 10,000 years because it's a great place to live. And so as long as people will live at a site and then maybe their city will be destroyed by invaders or they just do urban renewal, and then a new layer is built on top of the old layer. And as those layers built up, you end up with various strata. And then we come along to excavate them strata by stratum. And that's a technique called stratigraphic excavation. And it's, it's kind of like unpacking a layer cake. So you dig layer by layer and you treat each particular layer of the cake as a discrete slice of time where that site was occupied. And that allows us to reconstruct the civilization or, or life in the city during a particular time period, which is kind of ultimately the goal of most archaeology. So how does an archaeological team choose a location? Certain archaeologists have certain research fields of specialty. And so when people go into the field, they're looking for a site that will be able to enlighten their particular field of interest. So when I worked on the dig in Syria, my supervisor, one of the dig sponsors, was very interested in a certain period of pottery called Ninevite 5 pottery. And so he went to this region and found a bunch of Ninevite 5 sites that were available that had a lot of pottery, Ninevite 5 sherds on the surface. And then uh, he chose one and just kind of, you know, well, we'll pick this one. All of them are suitable. But then he picked one it had the possibility of providing the most information about the Ninevite 5 pottery and period. Kind of the same with my dig in Israel. The co-sponsors of the dig were very interested in the arrival of the Philistines and their settlement in the land as they conquered Canaanite cities and built on top of them. So Tel Mikne Akron was a big 40-acre site, and the surface of the Tel was covered with sherds from the Philistine period. So that provided a really good amount of data to illuminate the Philistine arrival and settlement on the coast of Canaan. What's the probe and peel method? <laughs> the probe and peel method is how you excavate a particular square. So the archaeological site itself has a grid imposed upon it by the uh, architect, and then uh, the grid is divided into five-by-five-meter squares. And then within each five-by-five-meter square, a team will work. So a team using Tel Mikne as the example, would include one supervisor who was an experienced archaeologist who had worked at the site maybe two or three seasons, and then uh, who knew the paperwork routine, because as I mentioned before, the paperwork is very important, and then would have three volunteers. We'd be college students from the United States or from all over the world who were interested in archaeology, and they would do the grunt labor. And so the probe and peel, because you're digging and you obviously can't know what's under the ground, you take a small area and you do a probe. And so if we're starting, for instance, on the topsoil, usually when a site is prepared for excavation, the architect has laid out the grid, uh, you have datum points in terms of elevation, and then if there are weeds on the surface, those are carefully burned off during the winter rainy months so that you're ready to go right through the topsoil. And so you move through the topsoil, and as soon as you get through the topsoil and you start hitting, like at Mikne, for instance, a big layer of burnt mud brick debris from when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city in 601, then you would stop in your little probe. You, you haven't destroyed anything. You found where the next layer is. And then you, in theory, can peel off the rest of the square working out from the probe. 
and then reach the next level and then you know, start a new set of numbers and features and things like that. So you probe in one small area doing hopefully not much destruction until you hit the next layer. Then you peel the rest of the layer that you probed through. Then you peel that off. So that's probing and peeling. Dr. Mark Meal is our guest. We're talking about archaeological digs. On the other side, why do they have specialists? Why are they necessary on an archaeological dig? This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures and acts with spiritual blackmail, the gospel comes to Thessalonica, noble Bereans, Paul in Athens Part 1, and Paul in Athens Part 2. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you ever pondered the limits of archaeology? What can it tell us? What can't it tell us? Well, Dr. David Adams takes up this topic in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness, where he discusses the fact that archaeology ultimately doesn't prove anything. It simply gives us the facts that have to be interpreted. To learn more, pick up your copy of The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. The days are shortening and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Conach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about archaeological digs. Dr. Mark Meal is our guest. He's author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Art of Archaeology. Dr. Meal, why are specialists and what kind of specialists are needed there on an archaeological dig? That has really grown. The use of specialists started in the 1950s. Before that, people were mainly just archaeologists or Bible scholars. And then as it developed as a scientific discipline, we realized that more information could be gained from the site than just finding nice pieces of pottery and uncovering buildings. And we found out that there were bones in there. 
and that you could take the bones and study, for instance, sheep bones are ubiquitous. You find them everywhere. And you could take sheep and goat bones and study them and figure out what the ages of the animals were, whether they were male and female, if that's possible. And by studying kill patterns, you could determine whether people at a certain time were raising sheep or butchering sheep to enhance the health of the herd or to maximize meat production. So you can kind of tell things from that. And so people who study bones are very important. You always have a good bone person on the dig. We also do studies of sediment and doing sifting of sediment, looking for what are called micro artifacts. So things that would escape the naked eye, like fish scales, you can find by doing certain wet sifts, and then and that filters out the micro artifacts, which then can be studied and tell you information that you may not be able to pick up with the naked eye. So you have a sifter, or you have a soil person. And there's also, if you're in an area where you may find written text, you'll have an epigrapher, someone who can study this. And even most digs have these people on call, even if they aren't using them in the field. You have an epigrapher, you have study, someone who studies coins, you have someone who can study weights, the various weight stones, and tell you about the weights, someone who studies jewelry. And of course, you have the ceramicists, the people who can tell you about the pottery that you find, the types of pottery, the dates of the pottery, what the pottery was used for, how the pottery was made. All of those would be specialists that a normal dig would employ. In the field, you would have a ceramicist, a bone person, and maybe the soil person. But then you would have the other specialists kind of on call in case you came across a cache of documents or something, and your epigrapher could come in and help you out with that. How is a site prepared for excavation? Normally, when you find a site, it's been used for farming. And so the first thing you have to do is clear it. You can scrape down to the topsoil. And then if there are any overgrowth or weeds or things like that, you burn that off. And so that when your excavation crew comes, they can just start digging from day one. That's the physical preparation of the site in terms of Getting the dig in the field, your architect would draw a grid of the site, map elevation changes, you'd shoot in datum points for elevation, a lot of this. So I most of my field work is in the old days before GPS and all of that. So we were using level ears and surveying rods to help us shoot elevations. But now a lot of this is done using GPS and other computer systems. But those would be the main things to prepare the site physically. You'd plot out your squares. You'd have everything ready to go. You string them so that everybody would know where they're supposed to work. Your uh, supervisors come early. And so you brief the supervisors. You review paperwork. You divvy up supplies. You take them out to the field and they can look at their square and kind of see what had been excavated next to them in the previous seasons and help them plan their strategy as they're going to work in their particular square. Why are volunteers necessary? Volunteers are the grunts. As late as the 1960s, excavators in Israel and Palestine would employ local laborers to do the work. And it's just basically hard manual labor. Some of the local people were very skilled. They'd worked on many excavations, and so you had very skilled pickmen. But with the uh, state of Israel being established and archaeology really taking off there, that's where the use of, of volunteers became big. So I think initially it was just for archaeology students in Israel to gain fieldwork experience, people who were students at the university. But then it became a way to 
it in fact became cheaper than hiring the local people. It provided a great experience for people, you know, students in this country to travel over there. You spend six weeks in the field. You get familiar with uh, archaeology, the life of people in the Bible. You get to experience a different culture. And so volunteers is now the way it goes. It's a great experience for people, and I'd highly recommend it if they're interested. You meet people from all over the world. For instance, at Tel Mikne, one of our supervisors, her father, was in the House of Lords in England and was a financial advisor to the Queen. So we had her. We had two Hungarian women, of which only one spoke English, and so we always had to keep them together. We had a guy who was a member of a professional string quartet come and dig with us authors come and dig with us. People who are connected with the film industry came and dig with us. So it's a really kind of a melting pot experience as people get this invaluable, hands-on connection to the world of the Bible. How are artifacts handled after they're excavated? When artifacts are excavated, they first of all are tagged, labeled, and inked. So, you know, we have a part of the dig routine is you have your work in the field, then you have your work in camp. Work in camp involves washing and sorting the pottery that you found the previous day. Certain volunteers are taken up to help ink artifacts. So they they're sit there with their jar of ink and their nib and write on the shirt where it was from, where it was found, or write on the artifact. After that, they go into storage until the excavators have time to work with them, study them, assign them to specialists who can work with them and analyze them correctly for the final publication. So the artifacts stay with the excavation until the excavation is finished with the publication. Then they go into the Israel. All the artifacts belong in Israel's case to the state of Israel. And so the artifacts go into either storage in these vast warehouses in Jerusalem, or they are put on display in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So at Tel Mikne, we uncovered quite a few museum quality pieces. And so for me, it's always uh, very rewarding to go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and see artifacts that either I excavated or I saw or friends of mine have excavated. And you can kind of point with pride at that and say, yeah, I was there when that came out of the ground. But basically everything resides in the host country. What have you found at the digs you've participated in? It's always an interesting question. You, know, you come back from a season in the field and people go, what'd you find? Did you find anything? And like, well, of course we find something. We're digging in a densely built up urban area. You can't dig anywhere and not find a building. So we find buildings, we find architecture, pottery, the bones, uh, all kinds of things. The ordinary items of everyday life in antiquity that are not organic. Organic material decays like crazy. Probably the most interesting thing that I personally found was a cosmetic palette that was made out of ivory. It was in the Nebuchadnezzar destruction layer when he destroyed Ekron in 601 BC. And it was part of this collapsed building. And there was this little circular ivory palette. And ivory is really hard to not destroy when you're excavating because you're you know, kind of going through the soil with your hand pick. And usually if you're hand picking, anything fragile kind of gets broken. Uh, one of the sayings we like to shout out when someone breaks something goes, oh no, I broke something. I say, well, that's archaeology. Archaeology is destruction. And as I, you know, we destroy our data. So this one turned out to be really serendipitous because the the dirt flaked right off of it. And before I could whack it again, there was this nice circular, you know, spherical 
thing staring me in the face, obviously not a dirt piece. So we were able to brush it off and preserve it. And a part of it had broken so we could look at the cross section and found that it came from a, a tusk from an African elephant. So we knew that that particular piece was imported from Africa. And then that also went on display in the Israel Museum. So a combination of, in a sense, luck, a chance, we were able to preserve this because many, many ivory artifacts get whacked and destroyed and have to be restored and put back together. This one just had that one break where it broke naturally. That's probably the most interesting piece that I found. But we've also just the normal data that we uncover in terms of the sequence of events when the Philistines captured the city and what happened there. That also was a pretty major contribution, and that took place in one of the areas that I was supervising. We're talking about archaeological digs with Dr. Mark Meal, author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Art of Archaeology. What do they do afterwards? How do they piece these artifacts together to form a story? It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Dr. Mark Meal is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about archaeological digs. So, Dr. Meal, how do you piece artifacts together to form a story? The artifacts, in a sense, are mute. We find them, you know, it's there, it's a pot, but the context is what tells you everything. So if you find a whole set of cooking pots in a room, you can generally sense that that may have been a food preparation area or a storage area where cooking pots were kept. But you're kind of looking at the 
the whole picture of what was found in a particular place. And that involves not just the architecture that we uncover in the field or the pottery that we uncover in the field, but also the reports of the specialists. So if you find a floor and you turn in pieces of the floor and it gets sifted and they find out that there's small pieces of flint in this one area that tells us that they made flint tools in that one area. And then that kind of helps you build the bigger picture of the site itself or even the room in general. And so all those defines themselves as well as the reports of the specialists are the pieces that we put together. I like to say that archaeology is putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you only have about a third at most of the pieces. So we have to use a lot of inference. We use anthropological theory, which studies human behavior to help us kind of fill in some of the gaps. And we study current cultures that are preserving traditional ways, a field called ethnoarchaeology. So we can see, for instance, how a Bedouin today in the Negev desert are disposing trash. Where do they put their trash and what do they throw away? And then when we find similar installations, we go, oh, this is a trash disposal pit. So they help us with that. How is all of this information synthesized? The synthesis relies on the publisher. So whoever's publishing the site is the person who pulls this together. A lot of dig reports, modern ones that are done today, you'll have the major chapters which synthesize the history of the site, what the site was like at various times of its occupation. That will be done by the dig directors. And then within the report or the volume of reports will be the reports of the specialist. So you'll have a report from your bone person. You'll have a report from your weight person. If you find inscriptions, there will be a report from your epigraphers. And of course, the vast majority of the analysis is the ceramic analysis. And the ceramic analysis is usually done by the dig directors also because they tend to be specialists in that particular time period. They've studied the pottery. They know it well. So that would be what the synthesis looks like. So for an ordinary person reading an archaeological report, probably the first five to 10 pages where the history of the site and the various occupations are synthesized would be the most valuable. So you mentioned publication. Why is publication a vital part of that task? If the information isn't distributed, it's worthless. And there's a lot of digs that were carried out that were finished and then the excavator moved on to other things or through misfortunes in life, something has happened to them and the stuff just sits in a warehouse. And so dozens of people have put in summers of their life. There's this from a site, a big amount of information that could maybe help someone at a neighboring site understand their site or maybe help other people studying sites in the region put together a better picture of the region instead of having this kind of gap where the unpublished site is. The site that I've been working on for publication recently was Tel Tanakh, which was excavated by a team sponsored by the Missouri Synod in the 1960s. And it was visited by a whole series of misfortunes. The main driver for the site was a scholar named Paul Lapp. And when the excavation finished in 1968, he was going to drive things and get the publication going and made sure that all the supervisors did their jobs. But he drowned in a riptide off the coast of Cyprus in 1962. And so without kind of somebody driving the bus, it just kind of fell apart and nobody has really touched the material until I came along and visited it for my doctoral dissertation at Johns Hopkins in the mid-1980s. Finally, what place does the archaeological discipline play in the Christian faith? 
I like to say to my students that archaeology illuminates the biblical text. It sheds light on the biblical text. Rarely will you make a find that will prove an episode in the Bible or that will support the validity of the biblical text. Those finds do occur, but they're just very, very rare. The vast majority of archaeological fieldwork kind of fills in the biblical picture. So instead of reading about the Philistines and seeing them maybe in two dimensions in black and white, because of spending you know 10 summers digging up their buildings and studying their pottery and literally getting a hands-on experience with the Philistines, now my picture of the Philistines is in color in three dimensions. Nothing that we found proved David fought Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. You aren't going to find that type of information. The archaeological record doesn't preserve that type of information. But information about the Philistines, about the culture of the Philistines, what they look like, what they wore, what they ate, their pottery, all of that information is available. And so archaeology tells us a lot about the Israelite people, the cities they lived in when they first settled in the hill country under Joshua. We get a lot of information about that. But to pick out some evidence that proves Joshua crossed the Jordan River or to prove that David killed Goliath, that type of evidence is incredibly rare and you generally don't expect to find that. But to illuminate the biblical text and make it more real for the people is very important. As an Old Testament person, I hear people say, oh, you teach Old Testament, that's just a bunch of made-up stories. And That's kind of a common view outside of conservative Christian and Jewish circles. But I can come back to them and say, well, actually, you know, the Philistines, and we can talk a lot about the Philistines and the realia of the Philistine existence. Dr. Mark Meal is professor of theology at Concordia University, Nebraska. He's author of a column for the September edition of the Lutheran Witness magazine titled The Art of Archaeology. The Lutheran Witness interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. You can receive an annual digital and print subscription for less than $20. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, The Lutheran Witness Magazine. Dr. Meal, thank you. Thank you. When we return, we'll be responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller will be our guests. Jesus describes baptism as new birth. Dr. Richard Davenport, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. As big a deal as your own birth was, this should be that much and more. Learn more about this new Bible study, The Baptismal River, at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Here at Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church, you'll find folks just like you. 
sinners in need of what only Christ can give, the full forgiveness of all of our sins. In a world where change turns things upside down, we serve a Lord who never changes and who has promised to be with us always until the very end of the age. If you find yourself in the Milwaukee suburbs, look us up. Elm Grove Evangelical Lutheran Church is the only Lutheran church in Elm Grove, Wisconsin. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com lutheracademy.com